This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we have a special guest and we have a co-host, Mary McBride. She's the Independent Director of Catchmark Timber Trust, Senior Advisor to Catalyze, and the former president of CoBank. We have JoLynn Whiting. She is board-bound by the Women's Leadership Foundation, and she's a former executive of U.S. West. And we're going to be talking a little bit about Mary's background and also how that fits into her board experience. Yeah. Mary, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm pleased and to be here. JoLynn, thank you as well. We had a foot of snow last night and it's springtime in the Rockies, so <laughs> it's a normal day. That's right. Mary, if you would, tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what led up to your participation in the board world. Well, you know, I started my background, I started my career at Bank of Boston as an energy lender in the 1980s. And prior to that, I had, of course, gone to college and then I went to graduate school and got an MBA. And then I just went on through that career, really building up more and more lending experience and managerial experience. I worked for Bank of Boston. I then worked for First National Bank of Denver when it was First Interstate Bank. I worked for them for about eight or nine years and probably some of the absolute best lending experience I got was I was a workout lender during the oil and gas crash here in the 1980s. And that was, was that was an awful time. It, you know, it, for certain people, it was an awful time. And for me, it was certainly a stressful time. But you don't learn more than when you spend Valentine's night, which is a Friday night at 10 p.m. in bankruptcy court. That's when you're really at your best of learning. You, nothing says I care. <laughs> exactly. It was a great experience for me. And then in the early 90s, I moved over to CoBank. And I worked at CoBank for 25 years in just about every area you could, from lending to operations to, um, gosh, I had the uh, capital markets group, I had the finance group, just a whole host of various areas there, and then left there at the end of 16. And following that, I said, okay, I'm not going to be working full time, but how am I going to spend my time? And I was not ready to just turn it off fully. And I said, you know, I got a good background here in lending, commercial finance, and in financial services, but it probably more importantly in management. And how do you run an organization? What are the important components of an organization? How do you govern an organization? How do you set up compliance? How do you set up compensation systems? And that led me to an interest in doing corporate board work. And so when I started that, I started building a network and I started looking around and I went through the board bound program that Joe Lynn runs here, which was a great program from several aspects. I mean, it was wonderful from the content of the program it was also great to meet other women who were doing have similar interests and are also interested in being on a board. And it was also great for making contacts, particularly in the Denver community. Jolinda, you're going to have to kick me. Sorry, I'm <laughs> but, you know, I think about we were talking about a little bit before we started recording is that as you go through your career and if you were to offer advice to to other folks that are interested in being on boards, whether men or women, would you do it like you did and wait till after you got done with your career? Or how would you do it if you looking back now? I would not wait. I think I waited too late. And I think this is something that both men and women tend to do. When you are in a career, you tend to get singularly focused on your career. And also, if you have a family, when you're trying to balance the career, the family, get everything done and do what you need to do, you don't really look beyond that. And if the best advice I could give today would be to tell people, you know, start 10, 15 years actually before you're considering ending the career aspect and saying, what do I want to do later? And do I want to do board work? And if I want to do board work, how do I best set myself up for that? And I, I think there's several things I would have done differently. One is I would have certainly worked at building a network. I didn't begin any of that until after I left my job. Let me interrupt you for this. So I'm my daughter and I'm thinking about, you know, there's a point in my future that I want to take and maybe start serving on boards. And you say, I want to build my network. So what would you do? What advice would you offer to that young man or woman that's trying to build their network? Certainly. I think there are several things you can do. One, I think, is start by getting involved in the nonprofit community and in areas such as the metro chambers in your area, even rotary groups, groups like that, where you can meet people from other industries and other careers. 
certainly exposure to people in the professional services area. A lot of times boards, when they're seeking new candidates, turn to their accountants or their attorneys and getting involved in those areas, I think is important to do that. So I think it's just generally getting to know your community, other people in it, and also to the extent that you've got an industry focus, looking at the industry associations nationally. So that if you are involved, say, in you know the oil and gas industry, look at an oil and gas industry association nationally, get involved with that, get to know people across various other businesses and, and companies. And I think that's one way to really start to build a network. And one yeah. other thing, yes, that we have is a community board-bound program. Mary went through the corporate board-bound program to prepare for-profit large businesses. But the community board-bound program is great for people earlier in their career because they learn corporate governance. It's a six-session certificate program. You learn due diligence, the financials, and you're with participants, 20 or so other participants. So that is a way to build the network, too, people that are serious about this. And nonprofits can be your local nonprofit with the passion you have. Or it can be a larger national organization. It can be an industry association, but hospital and university boards, for example, are considered nonprofit and they're great experience for then taking on a corporate board position. You know, I would love to take and build a board, but maybe I'm not a CPA, I'm not an attorney. Is the demand for different skill sets starting to show up on boards other than just legal and accounting? And that, are you seeing that? Absolutely. Definitely seeing a demand for broader skill sets. And I, and I think that when I step back and I look at boards, I think the most effective boards are those that really sit back and say, what is the composition on our board and what do we need? Do, you know, and so give you an example of being on a, a timber board. Obviously, you need some level of timber experience on that board, but you also need experience in areas such as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, executive compensation. How do you set executive compensation? How do you simply manage governance well? How do you set up your compliance, your policies internally? I think there's always a need for people that have simply strong managerial backgrounds that understand how do you run a company and how should a company be run? So I think it's a mixture. And I do think it's very important for a board to not simply say, who's the next best person out there, but what is it that we need? to complete us and to make us an effective board. I think that's very important. You know, the research shows that CEOs are still the number one requested skill set and then CFOs. But one of the things that we talk about in the corporate boardbound program, that's great if you are a CEO. But if you're not, have you been in the C-suite? Have you reported to a CEO? Have you had interaction with the board? Have you managed operations? Do you know how to look at your profit and loss statement the way that the shareholders would to ask the right questions? And then other things that are people are looking for now is cybersecurity, digital marketing. As Mary says, trying to complete that skill set for what's important for that company to succeed. Yeah, and I think JoLynn just hit on one of the great reasons why it's good to start this early on, which is if you start this early on, you have the time to think about what your skills and expertise are and where your gaps are and what can you do to fill those out. So if someone doesn't have the financial experience or someone doesn't have certain of the comp experience or so, they can start working and develop those skills over this time frame and certainly understand a lot of that. And I also think the other point on learning corporate governance is key. How should a corporate board work? What is the role of the board? What is the role of the committees? What is the role of the CEO? And I do think that if you're not at a place where you're getting that through your corporate organization, through interaction with your board, working with a nonprofit is a great place to get that experience. You know, I was thinking about the resource, board governance, the terminology that we're familiar with. I don't know that it's widely understood as far as the term. and. And I think for some of the younger folks that are interested in progressing and getting you know more influential and more on boards and more involved, and that's where boardbound can come in. Even if you're not going to go on a board, you can go in and if you were looking at an employee and says, you know, these are my skill sets, but I've been through boardbound to understand how to function on a board, so I understand the company better. What would be 
your reaction if you knew somebody had already done that? I would think it was great. And I would think that, you know, even if I would go back to my old role where I was managing an organization, if I had employees further down the ranks that had done that, I would think it would be marvelous because they would then understand much better what was the role of our board. Now, when you get to the top, to the C-suite, you're obviously interacting with the board all the time. So you're making presentations, you understand what the board is, how they work, where their dynamics are. But further down the organization, people typically, as you mentioned, don't understand that. And I think just in your day-to-day career, it's great to have that knowledge because the board's kind of, I mean, I remember back in my junior years, the board's sort of a black box you hear about. You don't really know much about them. You don't see them a lot. They may speak to the employees once a year or so, or some of them may. So I think that's very important. I think there's a gap, honestly, you know, between like you were talking about, as you start to build your career, you're so focused on build your career. And if you're having a family, trying to devote your time to the things that are important. And then you look at an organization and you go, there's a board. You go, that's nice. I don't think that the typical employee has one clue why it's important, why it's important to understand. And I wonder from the board side, looking down to the employees, if they have a similar understanding of how far down their guidance doesn't go. Well, you know, it's fascinating that you bring that up because one of the things that we decided to do this year at Catchmark, where I'm on the board, was to have, after our board meeting, which we meet in the office, and typically we come in, we go into the office, a few of the employees come in and meet with us. We said, we're going to meet with all the employees. We're not only going to meet with them, we're going to have lunch and we're going to move out and sit with them and talk to them. And, and it was really an amazing day, both for what I heard from the staff and from the board, because you get such a better feel for the organization by doing that. Now, this is an organization that does not have a, a thousand employees, so it was easy enough to do. But I think that's really critical, is that boards understand what is the, the tone and the culture in the organization that goes beyond the top of the management team that they work with, and that employees understand what the role of the board is, too, and how the board feels about things. You know, I think that is important. And, you know, for a long time, I think there was a thought that the board should be handoff from management because uh, you trust the CEO and the management team to operate the company. But the board is to ask the great questions, to be sure that the company is thinking about the future, is thought about the risk, is thinking about what needs to be done. But boards are needing to get more hands-on, especially because of this point you made about culture. Yes. If you think about it, a large part of a company's value in the stock market has to do with intangibles, goodwill. It used to be that you could add up the book assets, the buildings, the manufacturing plant, the inventory, and you had pretty much the value of the corporation. But now, if you think of... Uber, if you think of Facebook, if you think of so many of the companies that have a very, their reputation can make a huge difference in what their value is. And that reputation really goes back to culture. And is it the right culture that is innovative, creative, supportive of the employees and free of all the things you want to avoid? (laughs) Yeah. And I think you can do that without subordinating or going around the CEO and the management team. They're different role. When the board's involved and just meeting with the staff, annoying them, it's not that you're going around to the CEO. It's that you're developing relationships there and getting a feel into what the organization is. Well, a couple of things came to mind. I functioned in the military and worked with the general officer. We'd go out to a training site and the general would pass all the officers and he'd go find the lowest ranking soldier mm-hmm. he could find. He goes, so why are you here today? What's your uniform today? When's the last time you had a warm meal? Just trying to see if it came through. And then second thought, when you're out with the employees as a board member and you're a woman out there, I am sure there's a fair quantity of women going like you're on the board. So I would think as a role model that there would be a great transmission of what's possible. Yeah, well, I was actually, you know, we picked two board members to speak to the staff and the board asked me to be one of them because I was a woman and they said the women in this organization need a role model. Would you mind speaking to them? So that was very nice from my perspective. And certainly you're absolutely right. I think it's very important. How long have you been on that board? Been on the board about, oh, about a year and a half. When you first arrived on the board, preconceived notion to what you think now, what's the difference between before you got there and now that you've been there for a while? 
Boy, that's a good question. I've got to think about what the preconceived notion was. I don't know if it's a difference, but how I feel now is it's a really congenial, good working group that's very transparent. And the things that I've learned from being there are the importance of board trust and board and management trust. I mean, you always know those are there. You always knew that, but it really becomes paramount when you're on a board. There are only, as I see, five of us independent directors and the CEO is the other director. And so having trust amongst the group, being willing to be transparent, being open is just absolutely critical. Mary, how did you find out about that board? How did that opportunity come to well, you? Well, actually, they had been a customer of mine, but the real way I found out about it was that the person who's the CFO and now the president at the time, he's president right now, had worked for me about 20 years ago, and we had remained in touch. And so he <laughs> asked, reached out to me. So an example of the network. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and I think about what a, a very interesting thing to have happened because, you know, you look at the culture you were trying to transmit when he was working for you. Yes. And then you look at, you come back in on the board position. Did you recognize some of the things that you were teaching back then? Absolutely. He's very much an open, transparent, gives a lot of feedback, all of those things that I think are very important. And I would say I wasn't always good at that. You know, you ask about, about things you would have done differently. I kind of look back in my career and I say, okay, What are some of the things I would have done differently? And I think feedback, giving and receiving feedback is something that took me a while as a manager and as an employee to get accustomed to and to accept the way I should. And I think those are kind of the growth steps we all go through at various stages. But that's something for me that was a change. Constructive criticism is rarely appreciated. No, it certainly isn't. But, but, but you learn. But you know what? What I really learned over time, and I think the thing that taught me the most about this was that I learned when I had employees that were not successful in their positions that allowing them to stay was harming them because there are very few people who can't be successful somewhere, and the sooner you help them go find somewhere where they can be successful the better off they're going to be. And I think that was something that really was impactful for me because it's, I know we've all said whenever we're moving someone into a different position, gosh, I wish I'd done that sooner. And they probably feel in many ways they'd wish they'd known that sooner too. You know, I I, I think of how, so you get the notification, please come on the board. And I'd be really interested in one, what you were thinking when you got the notification. And then what was the homework that you did before you went to the first meeting? Okay. Well, you know, I want to step back and tell you before the interview, because I think this is kind of a telling process. I'm a banker. I'm a numbers person. So before I went to the interview, I, of course, I read every SEC filing. I read every financial statement. I knew absolutely everything I could possibly know publicly about the company financially. They did not ask me one financial question. (laughs) The focus was on fit. The focus was on who are you? How do you make decisions? How do you behave under pressure? What will happen if someone makes you really angry? Are you willing to speak up? It was a very much of a behavioral interview. And it was very, very interesting to me from that standpoint, because I, of course, had in my mind, this was going to be very much a, is our debt ratio right? And what would you do about this? But it was much more about fit. So um, that's how I prepared for the interview. Now, how I, of course, prepared for the first board meeting was very similarly. I read absolutely everything and I was extremely well prepared. I would say that I was very judicious in my how I managed the first board meeting and the fact that I wanted to ensure that I contributed, but I also wanted to ensure that I listened and that I read the dynamics of the group and understood kind of how the process were and how they were handled. And I think about that and because it's a common term to you. All right, so I was judicious. What does that mean? And, you know, how do you go in and make a good impression, still, you know, and still say something? So what was on, on your mind? So I'm going to go into the meeting. I did all my math, and they didn't ask me any of my math. And so they want to know how you're going to react. So you're in the board meeting. Do you recollect some of the stuff that you did to contribute in the first meeting? Oh, gosh. Listen, I'm trying to think about if I could remember those things. But I probably... I probably, I ask questions. I did contribute comments where I had comments to make. And I would say that 
what I've tend to do successfully in these meetings is if there's a lot of chatter and some level of chaos is I've tried to bring order to that by summarizing things and saying, I think we're headed in this direction and do we need to be moving on on that path? You were the first woman on the board, yes? Yes. How do you think that was received? They're great. I have had no issues whatsoever. I mean, I think they've been, they're just a wonderful group of gentlemen and I've enjoyed working with them. And I, and I perceive that, you know, my input is certainly sought. I'm included. I see nothing different from it, which has been great. Which is you know, refreshing, frankly. Yes, you know, it's been wonderful. That's what I was hoping to hear. There was the part in there where you mentioned in the interview, how do you handle adversity or stress? What did you say? Oh, I said, I use humor a lot, which is true. I mean, first, you know, I can handle, I said, obviously I can handle a fair amount of stress given the career I've had. But if I'm in a difficult situation, I don't tend to lash out. I tend more to try to find humor in the situation and diffuse and diffuse the conflict. Looking over your career, so you've gone from the banking business, effectively, pretty much every facet, mm-hmm. and you're now in another resource business, timber, renewable. What do you think the biggest difference between those two are? That's a good question. At, at their core, I don't know if you look at them from the standpoint of when I was a lender, it was very different because you're a lender and you're evaluating financial statements and you're doing those types of things. When you were a manager of the bank and running the business, it's not that different from running the timber business. I mean, the things you're concerned with are are different, but the issues are, do you have the right compensation policies? Do you have the right people? Do you have the right compliance things? set up? Are you managing your risks appropriately? Are your financials appropriate? Do you have your right things done with your audit? I mean, all of those types of managerial things are the same. Where I would say they're really different, though, would be in a business like Catchmark and CoBank versus a business like Catalyze, which is a startup. And at that stage, it's my role there as an advisor, but it's a very different role because then you are at the beginning stages of what are the next steps you take? How do you fund the organization? How do you bring people on board? How do you start to develop a culture? You know, how do you do those things? That's, I see more, much more differentiation there than in larger stable businesses and the issues you're confronting. So what is Catalyze's uh, mission? Well, their mission is their focus is to put solar on commercial and industrial buildings also with some storage. And then effectively, I mean, it gets a little complicated, but then effectively you can increase the value of the building because you're providing the power to the building and then the building can also put power back into the grid. And so it's been very much, I've got some projects that are about to get underway in in New England, but it's a very different approach. So So when you were talking about storage, on-site storage of the excess power. Yes. I shifted to storage facilities as soon as you said storage. Okay. Yeah. No, storage. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Sorry. (laughs) And I think about, you know, if you have a large commercial property and you do that, then it changes your net operating income. Exactly. Exactly. And it depends on, you know, a whole host of things. It depends upon the the regulations of where you are. It depends on where you are relative to substations and the cost of power and a whole host of things, but it can be very effective in certain ways. And then, then I started thinking about places we've been talking about, you know, think about universities, their cost. And if you did some of this with them and you did it with, obviously, and hospitals eventually will move from using diesel power generators to using a renewable facility to back up, be their backup power when they can have storage and more reliability. So it's all a fascinating industry. So in, in looking at that, you see you've got your board experience, you've got your banking experience and your academic experience, and you're working with the Catalyze. How different do you have to present your business vocabulary when you're working with this new group? Because they haven't had board experience necessarily. They haven't necessarily run big companies. Well, most of them have come from large companies okay. and have had quite a lot of experience and have good experience in, in that those areas. So it's they, they tend to have that experience. It's more the keeping the terminology straight between the timber and the renewables and the banking <laughs> and the various areas. Yeah, there's no on the stop in the, exactly. in the renewables world. Exactly. It's a, well, yeah. Mary, tell us how you got on the Catalyze Advisory Board. Oh, well, Catalyze, why I became an advisor for Catalyze was kind of interesting because after I left CoBank, when I was at CoBank, I did a fair amount of renewables finance. And in graduate school, I had gone to Sloan at MIT and they had a renewable finance roundtable that they invited me to. And I went to Boston to this renewable finance roundtable and I happened to meet 
the two founders of Catalyze, one of whom's in Boulder, who I had never met before. And we just started talking and we found areas of similarity. And so we got together for coffee. We kept talking. We t- talked about areas. And so then turned out that it worked out. I came over as an advisor, which has been great. But it just shows the, once again, it shows the value of the network and the small area and the fact that you really do need to get outside your your comfort zone of your job, even when you have your job. And so you've gone from the for-profit arena and you're also involved with United Way. Yes. What's compare contrast? Oh gosh. Well, United Way is a fascinating organization. And I just finished about a year ago, I was board chair there for two years, been off the, not chair for the last year, but very different from the standpoint of you've got a much larger board. You've got committees who, who function differently. I mean, you've got the same financial stress you have in another company. You've got to ensure your financials are right. You've got to ensure all those areas are, but you've really got to focus on that mission. The mission and fundraising take such a large component of this. And where do you take the organization? And you know, United Way is a, a large nonprofit, so it is a very strong and stable staff. Some of the other nonprofits, I think board members have to almost serve as semi-employees because they don't have the depth of the staff. I mean, we're very fortunate at United Way to have that. Now, United Way is local and it's national? Yes. Was there interaction? There is some interaction, but, you know, each of the United Ways really has their own mission. United Way, it's very interesting because Worldwide United Way runs kind of the national programs and provides some support. And what they're really working on now is fascinating is that the whole way that people give has changed so much. I mean, when you worked at U.S. West back in there, and I worked at the banks, you had corporate giving programs and people gave through their corporate giving programs, typically to United Way. Now, increasingly organizations are coming up and saying they want a broader corporate giving program. But also increasingly, people don't work for large companies. People work in Starbucks as contractors. People work for small startups. They work for companies like Catalyze. So how do you access them for charitable contributions? And so United Way Worldwide's working on an app with Salesforce.com and a way to you can start using that because I think that's going to be effectively how the younger generation wants to do this, not through filling out a paper form and doing it through corporate giving. As a donor, so let's say you've got the smaller business owner and in, in the donation issues, how does the donor know about what effect their donation is having? Is, is this app you're envisioning, that, is it going to come yeah, back? All of those things are going to start on that. They're going to have areas where you can focus on where your interests are. Then there'll be updates that show what's been done in that area. And I think, you know, all of that will be covered in, in something like this in a digital platform, because I think in the future, you have to have that. And I think that's one of the things that's very important today too, is that the millennial generation doesn't want to just contribute. They want to be involved. They want to know where their money goes and they want to volunteer. And so these apps too are going to be set up to involve interaction with both of those factors. You know, as you're talking about digital platforms and apps and so on, and I'm thinking about your career, right? And there's some period of time where you became familiar. You know, and I think about the demands on board, you're talking about cybersecurity yes. and you're talking about social media. and the internet or whatever whatever you want to call it. So do you think that there's going to be a trend on the boards to start trying to bring in basically a technology or social media interpreter? I think it's going to be to depend on the nature of the company. I think companies that have retail presences and deal with consumers are going to have to have a very well understood social media technical philosophy at the board. And I think we're already beginning to see that and they're beginning to focus on that. But I also would say too, I think as a board member, you are, it's incumbent upon you to educate yourself too. I don't think you can sit there and say, you know, I'm on this board and I came and I brought, you know, banking experience. So that's what I'm bringing. It's incumbent upon me on a board to educate myself in all the aspects that are important to that board. And it is a lifelong learning proposition. And I think, you know, I think one of the things that is so critical with board work is it's work. I mean, people who, if they don't think it's work, they're looking at it, they haven't been on a board and it is something that you've got to take very seriously and you've got to know and you've got to understand, you know, your fiduciary responsibility, your risks and all of the components of that. So I think it is a learning experience, but I do, back to what you said, I do think technology is critical with certain organizations. From your perspective on the various boards and and, uh, organizations you're involved with, what do you think are the top one or two things that concern boards now? 
Well, one, I think it is going to be, depending upon the nature of your business, how is that going to evolve into a digital business? I think that's clearly at the top of that. I think certainly, uh, as Joe Lynn mentioned earlier, cybersecurity is up there. I think staffing is up there. How do you ensure that you maintain staff, educate staff, and keep staff in this environment? And then the, the last one I would mention too would be, I think this whole area of ESG, environmental, social, and governance is very critical. I think investors increasingly and employees increasingly are saying, you know, it used to be you served your stake, you served your shareholders, served your shareholders, you were fine. Now it's you serve your stakeholders and your stakeholders are your community. Your stakeholder is the environment. Your stakeholder is the people who might be put out of a job by your processes. And I think it's very important for boards to say, who are we serving? How are we doing this? And keep some level of data and information on that, whether it's through a sustainability report or an ESG report, but to sit down and say, really, what's our mission? And are we meeting that mission? And while certainly it is for the shareholders, but it's also for this broader community. I do think it's interesting that investors are making a big difference. As a matter of fact, a lot of them, there's an impact investing with a gender lens. And Board Bound by Women's Leadership Foundation is part of the 30% Coalition. The 30% Coalition is a national organization, mainly made up of investors who have said, have you looked at the research? Do you see that boards that have women on them tend to perform better? They tend to have less governance controversies. They tend to have fewer financial restatements. They tend to be more socially responsible. And so it's the general ESG, environmental, social, and governance. But that, I think, has been a big driver, too, in helping us slowly build up on the women that are on boards. No, I think you're, I think you're right across the board here. I think it's really it's a time when people are stepping back from saying, this is a company, I went to work for a company, we meet shareholders' needs, too. What's our role in society? How do we meet this role in society? All these other aspects are still important. Paying people well is still important. Earning money for your shareholders is still important, but your role in society is also extremely important. You know, from an investor standpoint, and you shared this information that boards with women on them, the stock typically outperforms boards that don't have women on. And so I would think from the investing community, whether it's institutions or anybody else, if that knowledge is widespread, it would seem like that would be a criteria. And what was it? Yeah, let me give you the the data point from that. Boards that had three or more women on them over a five-year period had a 37% increase in earnings per share compared to the all-male boards over that same five-year period who had an 8% decline in earnings per share. To me, I mean, that's a, a layup. I mean, you go, well, what's the board component? Do they have more than this? Yes, no. And you kind of go, then the performance. It seems like that's a straight line to me. Right, and- now. We have to insert a little footnote that things are correlative, not causative. Yes, exactly. Doggone it. (laughs) You know, from a research point of view, you can't say, if you do this, this will automatically happen. But what you can say is that in general, there is a strong relationship that is found. And maybe it's because those companies do a lot of things right. Yes. Well, you know, and I think, too, I think one of your data points was that 85% of the buying decisions are made by women. And I go like, if you don't have a board with women on it, go like, so you got some dude interpreting? Yes. And I think that's a bit of a challenge in my mind. Well, and the other thing is just diversity of mindset. And one of the things that we're really working on, too, is women of color and being sure that we have African-American and Asian and Latinas participating in corporate board bound and assuming roles on boards, because the more diversity that you bring is generally that sh- being building trust and sharing perspectives from different perspectives, it builds creativity and results. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we live in an increasingly diverse society. And I think like our organizations, our board should reflect that diversity. Yeah, I would think that the discussion would be somewhat constrained if you didn't have enough of the cross-section of the country in the discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how I view that. You go, well, I had no idea because I'm not you. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I was thinking back as in one of your comments about cybersecurity and data, for lack of a better term. 
Do you see a focus on data use with all the machine learning and AI issues that are starting to surface? Well, I think there's an issue with data use kind of across the board. I mean, there is so much data out there. And I think one of the things that I'm going to talk to this from the board perspective first and kind of overall, like you ask, but from the board perspective, I think and managerial teams can easily overwhelm boards with data that is not information. And I think that if you're giving board books that are, you know, a thousand pages long and such and such, and you're giving a lot of that information, you really need as a management team to distill down to say, what, what does this data mean? What is the information I need to impart to that board? But separately, your question is organizationally, yes, there's no question about this. I think there are going to be major leaps in these areas and there are major pitfalls in these areas too which are how do you take the machines, move into deep learning, move into the artificial intelligence side, and get that information and into data that's usable. And there's some uh, very interesting studies out there and very interesting books. One of the interesting books that I've just been reading is a book called, uh, it's called AI 25 Possible Minds. And it's a, basically 25 top physicists and professors and such talking about AI and the risks and where they see it kind of from a technological standpoint. And it's fascinating because there's a lot that can be done, but then there also are limits to the what machines can do that people can't do. I'm an old intel guy from the military, you know, and data is not intelligence. No. Data is just data. Exactly. You know, so you got to ask the right question, and then you've got to have somebody somewhere that goes, is that meaningful? Exactly. And I was thinking about this understanding of data and usage. There's a piece out, there's a country that's done basically a credit score based on your behavior to determine whether you're a good citizen or China, not. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about that as an overall circumstance and the whole, I think San Francisco just outlawed facial recognition yes. use. Yes. And so I think there's a bit of a pushback coming yes. on some of this. And yet John Kelly, which you know, yeah. he's very big into the data space at Ciriscan where they're looking at brain scan anomalies and be able to characterize what's going on based on either injury or oxygen depletion and what that function of the brain does. So for you guys in, in the board space, how do you see board members coming up to speed to understand this data criticality? Well, again, I'd say I think a lot of that becomes self-education. Okay, so it becomes self-education. It also becomes, in certain instances, having a, an expert on your board. I think that's another one. Another area would be in evaluating your own information technology team at your organization and understanding, do they understand data and its uses, but do they also understand the risks of the security side of this too and ensuring you've got in the right, the right information and sort of set up there to understand that too. So I think those are kind of three prongs there. And I think it's also, but I do think, you know, it's really important to step back and say where, you know, the areas you're talking about, medical diagnostics and such are great places for this they can do superior things because it's taking lots of data and analyzing it. And one of these articles I read, which was fascinating to me, they said it really starts falling down is that what humans do is that, you know, when you're going to set up something to, for artificial intelligence, you're going to say, I'm going to optimize to this. You've got a set of values and you're constantly trading off optimizing to those values. Little tweaks all day long, which is, you know, am I going to cross the street in front of that car? I'm not going to cross the street in front of that car. Am I going to, you know, I'm on a diet, but I'm going to eat this chocolate. I mean, it gets a little more complicated than that. But they said, that's what the machines can't do is they can't constantly make those kind of tweaks between their value systems. It's fascinating. You know, Mary, one of the things we talked about is being on a board, but then there's also board committees. Could you sort of describe the committees on your board and where you might participate? Sure. Um, Well, the board I'm on has four committees. It's got a finance committee, a nominating and governments committee, a compensation committee, and an audit committee. And I'm on everything but the audit committee. When you have a board with only five or six people, you find that you're typically on almost all the committees. And I'd say people are very well versed in the activities and information of every committee in that. But the day-to-day work, so the work of the compensation committee, the day-to-day work of we're going to set up a a long-term incentive plan, we're going to set up a short-term incentive plan, we're going to have these criteria. The committee does that work and then goes back and works with the board once once that's done. And I think, you know, typically those are 
you typically see a compensation and audit and a nominating and governance committee. Sometimes you see a finance committee. Sometimes you may see a risk committee. So it's going to depend on the organization, what other committees you see. And it's also going to depend on, I'd say, the size of the board, how active the committees are, and to areas that the board is a little less well-informed on. Obviously, if, you, if I go to the nonprofit sector and I go to a United Way with a 40-member board, the nominating governance committee on that board really does the nominating and governance without the rest of them. A lot of, you know, they come back to the board for approval, but they do pretty much a lot of the work themselves. So for the person that's thinking they want to get involved, is the, the various committees, is that a good place for them to take and try to participate? Well, let's see. That's a good question. On a, Some of the nonprofits will have committee members who aren't on the board, and that's certainly a way to do it on a nonprofit. On a corporate board, you're going to have to be a corporate board member to be on, on the committee. They're not going to do anybody other than that. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, I was thinking about, was there a, a mentor? Did you find one or did one just show up that helped you through your career? Did you find it? You know, I'd say there've been different mentors at different stages. And, you know, I was very lucky when I first started my career back at Bank of Boston to have supervisor who would sit down and explain everything to me. Because, you know, you come out of graduate school, you go to work and you don't really know things. And one thing that I have kept my entire career and still have is the first draft commitment letter that I wrote to a borrower when we were going to be making them a loan. And I kept it because it is a legal liability in action because my first draft was so naive and so bad. And I kept it all these years because I kept it so that I would remember when I was working with junior people that you're not born knowing this stuff. You have to learn it. And one of the ways you learn it is you make mistakes, but you have a safety net, a supervisor, a system set up to help you through that. And so that's why I always kept it because I saw way too many people become too demanding and too difficult with junior people, assuming that they should know something when we all were there and we all had to learn it. So yes, I had that that one. And then I had various ones at various stages, but it, typically they've always been my managers, I think. And I hear you know, there's a problem finding mentors and so on yeah. and so forth. And you have mentors in, yeah. in four yeah. part. And so I think about in an organization and somebody's listening says, how do I take in and promote this mentor mindset among yeah. the supervisors in my organization? So you can bring that next layer of leadership forward. Do you have any thoughts on how you might institute that? Yeah, I worked on that for a while. And I think there are several avenues to look at here. One that you can do within your corporation. And I think you certainly can set up mentors in the corporation. I think it's important when you have that, you have some level of policy there, how frequently you're going to meet and what are the expectations. And I think one of the critical factors there is, what are you mentoring on? Some people want mentoring on maybe I'm in human resources and I want to learn the financial side of the business. So it's very much of a skill base. Others really want mentoring on how do I be a manager or how do I handle my life, et cetera, you know, by balance. But I think increasingly I've seen more to programs like Boardbound where you've had mentors and then also a United Way just set up something between, which is very interesting. I'm a mentor for a young woman there who works for an accounting, one of the accounting firms. And they set up a program because they wanted to bring their young leaders, give them more interaction with the board and with some of us who are more mature. Let's put it that way. That's the uh, word. That's the word, word you're looking for. And it's been fascinating because working with her, I think, you know, and some people, sometimes they want to deal with things that they wouldn't want to deal with internally, which is, should I take this next promotion? Or, you know, I have a child. What's the, how do I do my balance? Some of the things you may not want to talk about internally in your organization. So I think mentoring is very important, and I think it's great that as a society, we're making it more programmatic and available through various areas. But I think it can't just be organizationally. I think that's great, but it's good to have it outside the organization, too. One of the things that our mentors, and John Kelly, for example, is one, we have men and women who are mentors in the program. But one of the first things is just demystifying what being on a board is. Because uh, if you've had a successful executive career, but you haven't been on a board, I think hearing that person's story and how did it happen for them, similar to what we're sharing today, but that's one important thing. But the other reason it's very important 
is when you develop your target list of companies, having uh, someone to give feedback and say, okay, that's good. That may be a good dream company, but is it your realistic first board step? And what might that be? Or then, like when you are going to the interview, you have someone that you can talk to about, okay, I'm trying to do due diligence on this company because you don't accept every board opportunity you might be offered. And so having someone that can be a sounding board on that, I think is important. And and as a matter of fact, when Cheryl Campbell did get the opportunity at Pacific Gas and Electric, which is very exciting, she called her mentor, John Kelly, to discuss how do I prepare for that first board meeting? And that was after the formal program was over, but the relationship had been established and it's just good to have a sounding board. And as you say, it is pretty specific. It's about on your board journey, what is the advantage of having a mentor? And sometimes people are in the same industry and we've gotten good feedback from that. And sometimes they're not and they still feel like that it's quite useful. I'd say one thing that I found very useful was the assistance my mentor provided me in developing my board resume and my board bio. And in questioning me and bringing out things that I wouldn't have thought of. They were there, but I just wouldn't have, wouldn't have been my first thing to think about and how to put them down and how to order them, what to work with there. And I think that's a very, very helpful component of that mentoring there. Well, I think, you know, going back to some of your first comments, you know, you did all your mathematical homework. homework. Yeah. And all of that stuff, and you went in way part of that component is confidence that I know my numbers. Yeah. You know, I did my homework, thanks. Yes, you know, exactly, yeah. I'm yeah. academic over yeah, here. Exactly, you yeah. know, and then how do you prepare for the potential of the interview that you got? Where it was, yeah. how do you resolve problems? What do you think as far as how do you prepare for that? Well, I think the main way I prepared for a lot of these were to say, you know what, I'm going to just be very honest and transparent with how I feel. You got to be yourself. And I think, you know, what people are really looking at there is trying to find out who you are. And I think it's very important to be yourself in those. So thinking through what they might be looking for, all of those kind of avenues are, are helpful. But I think the real key is going into the interview, being yourself, being honest, being transparent. And I think you hit on something, being confident. Yes. Uh, doing yes. Your work. Doing your work. Doing because your work. part of this is visualizing and being on a board, understanding how you're going to transfer your skills, your executive skills to the boardroom, how that's going to translate. And one of the things that is important is asking the right questions. I was just going to get to that. I think one of the really critical factors there is to understand what are they looking for? Get the people there to talk some about the other board members. What is it you're really looking for here? And do I fit that? Am I going to fit in there? And, and how do they evaluate success? What's success to them? You know, so I think those are very important things. It, it is a two-way process here. I mean, I think you know, it's a fascinating because people look at okay, you get on the board, you go okay. Now what? So what's your workload look like? What do yes. you do between board meetings? Yes. How much time does it take? What do they send you? What do you send? Them? You know, and exactly. maybe elaborate some on between well, board know, meetings. What are you doing? Oh, between board meetings, I bet I have four to five calls a week. We are a very active board. <laughs> But I think the other, you know, back to another question that this I think is very important. One of the questions that I asked was, how do you communicate with management? What's the role of the chair? I mean, because you want to know how this is done. Some organizations, it's kind of free for all. You know, everybody can talk to everybody. They don't, they, other organizations are much more formalized and they want the, the chair wants to be involved in the conversations and know what conversations are going on. So it's very important to ask those questions and understand what are the norms here? Well, We've been picking on you for some time now. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun. It's been fun. You, you guys know, are great. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, it. we've covered pretty much everything that I could think of at the yeah. time. Is there an insight that we didn't cover that we should have? Oh, gosh. Let me see if there's an insight we didn't cover that we should have. I would say if there's one thing that I just reemphasize again, it would be the planning, the networking, and the self-reflection of how do I fit? Where do I belong? And where do I need to improve my skill set? I think those are the things that I would focus this on, on going on a board. And then I'd reiterate again to it being a great experience. And you really do, as JoLynn mentioned earlier, you get the benefit of 
a number of very diverse ideas and viewpoints, which is wonderful in this process. I, I might ask then, besides the compensation, what have you gained? What have you felt like has been a benefit to you of serving on board? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. One, I've developed some great friends, which is good. I think everybody who has gone through a long career has a need to feel achievement. And when you leave your career and you're not feeling achievement anymore at various things, you know, you say, okay, how do I get those feelings? And I think when you're able to contribute through this process and you're able to add value and your opinion is sought and you see the value that you're adding and the benefits coming through there, you get a lot of satisfaction from that. I mean, I actually think, you know, the compensation's the least part of it. The idea that you can use some of your experience and work with people and develop relationships and add value to an organization is certainly the most important. Well, I think it goes without saying that, like many other things, start earlier than you think. Yes. All right. Use Boardbound as a resource because it's, you know, frankly, it's the only one that I know of. I mean, I don't think there's, maybe it's just because of ignorant, but, you know, it's like, Perry, here's your board training exercise program to go to. And I don't know if there are any. Oh, there, there are others. Another great resource is the National Association of Corporate Directors. And it is, our Colorado chapter uh, is very active. So I think you talked about the continual learning. I'm going to the NACD fellowship program and some of the meetings and the roundtables that they have. It's a great way. They have a great resource library. So if I were to contrast them as a wonderful resource with what we do, there's this like the education of how do you govern well? And we do have some of that. We have governance experts that talk at our, speak at our workshops. So we do give people an overview of that. But we also are focusing on your own personal journey. How do you prepare? How do you equip yourself to step into board service? And you guys offered the part about helping them with their resume for the board as well. Yes, yes. Uh, your board bio and resume. And then it's on our website. and. We also have a Board Connect program. If any company would like to meet potential women board candidates that meet their specific skills that they need, we'd be glad to introduce them to them. So that's another advantage. Harvard University has a board program. Catalyst in New York has a board prep program. So there are others around the country. What we're glad is here in Colorado, because we provide the mentor, we provide the workshops. But we also have then the participants themselves that form a network and become alumni and can support each other on an ongoing basis. And so that's what we're trying to build as key assets. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys taking time out of your day. Mary, thank, well, thank you, you so much. This has been awesome. And I have learned lots. And hopefully the folks that tune in have learned a lot as well. Right. Well, thank you very Thanks. much. Thanks. Best.